0: Turn this morning to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians and the third chapter, please. Just add my words of encouragement to the choir and those involved, and how you have often ministered to my own heart as I sit and just listen to the words and what you're singing. Very thankful for how the songs of Zion lift up our hearts. And it's good to come into the pulpit encouraged already before you come to try and be an encouragement to others. So thank you. And just underline, you know what? You just never know how you may be a means of blessing. You may not have ever thought yourself as being part of a choir. Well, you never know until you try. And certainly we'd encourage those who uh, would want to be a part to think about it as it will start up again later on in the year. So we're in this first epistle of Paul's to the Thessalonians. We have reached the third chapter, and we're going to read from verse 1 again. We were here here last Lord's Day, looking at the opening four verses, and that is... Read again from verse 1 to the end of verse 10. Let us hear the living word. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast, in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Amen. We end our reading there, trusting the Lord to open up the remainder of this portion to us as we consider it together. Let's all pray and seek the Lord. Lord, we humble our hearts before Thee and before Thy living Word. We pray that there would be no hindrance in our hearts, in any of our hearts, to receive the Word with profit. We pray that it may be a life and soul-transforming Word to us, that it may have its intended purpose, like our Lord Jesus has told us, that it might sanctify us. We pray for its transforming effect to work powerfully in our lives Thou knowest where each and every one of us are spiritually and where we are presently in our lives and in our growth in the things of God. And I pray that it might please Thee to take this Word and give an abundance of the activity and ministry of the Spirit of God, that He may take the Word and make it live in our hearts and transform us and challenge us and cause it to just Be that word in season. Give this preacher then the infilling of thy spirit, how we need thee. O God, we just humble ourselves before thee. We can be of no good to any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, unless thou art pleased to make us that vessel, that instrument that we so desire to be today. Answer prayer common power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever the Apostle Paul walked into Thessalonica for the first time, his message to them is summarized for us in Acts chapter 17, verse 3, where we are told that he, opening obviously the Scriptures and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. I read that again in your hearing to underline the fact that the Messiah needed to suffer. And that message was coming from the Apostle Paul as an essential part of his ministry to the Jews. That Christ must needs suffer. They were looking for the Messiah to come and bring material prosperity to Israel. But Paul says, no, he must needs suffer. Lord Jesus Himself, when you remember He came alongside the two on the road to Emmaus, we read that portion in Luke chapter 24, and I just highlight two verses 25 through 27, where we have the record, Then He said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Uh, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So again, he underlines this particular facet of the ministry of Messiah that he ought to suffer these things before he enters into his glory. Peter also brings this to the fore in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where he writes, "...of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently." Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So the message that was underlined over and over again and needed to be clarified was that Christ must suffer. But then another message needed to be clarified and was. Underlined over and over again, and that is that his people also must suffer. I know I've quoted this text numerous times in this series from Acts chapter 14 when Paul makes his return trip from his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and he visits the churches that had been planted and that had been established, and the summary statement of their ministry is given in Acts 14:22 confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. In his lessons to new believers, Paul underlined the Christian experience in this world as one of suffering. But more than that, when you read through the Word of God, you will find that repeatedly the apostle ties the sufferings of Christ together with the suffering of the people of God that he brings these two aspects together. So it's not just me presenting before you him underlining the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and then underlining the suffering of the people of God, but he brings it together himself. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and if children, speaking of the people of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. There's a the suffering with Christ that the people of God experience. Second Corinthians 1 verse 5, he says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 verses 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's Sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So, you bring the scriptures together and you see that there's this emphasis upon the fact Messiah must suffer before he enters into his glory, and his people must suffer before they enter into their glory. And so, there's this mutual experience of the people of God with their Savior and their Redeemer. And suffering in this world, and so it's emphasized. Christ suffers, we suffer. Now, last week in the opening four verses of this chapter that we've read together, we, we considered it under the title Pastoral Care for a Persecuted Church, and you can see that coming out. Paul's concern is pastoral care he had for them, because he was worried about how they were getting on in the midst of the persecution. That began before he even left the city and continued even in his absence. But this week, our text is entitled, Pastoral Joy for a Faithful Church. It's not care for a persecuted church, but it's joy for a faithful church. Because when news gets back to Paul, it is good and there is joy. And he is thrilled by what is going on as the work of God continues by the grace and power of the Spirit. So... As we look at these verses together from verse 5 through verse 10, the Lord giving us help we trust, we want to see first of all the enemy of faithfulness, then the evidence of faithfulness, and then the effect of faithfulness. First then, the enemy of faithfulness in verse 5. For this cause, he writes, when I could no longer forbear, just to underline again, you see him uh, stating something that he's already stated in verse 1. When we could no longer forbear, Okay, just find a seat and you'll let others, they'll be more comfortable when you find a seat, sir. If you look at verse number 1, where he says, when we could no longer forbear, he says the same thing in verse 5. So, if you can follow child of God, he he is bringing us back to something he began at the opening of the chapter. And he is coming back to this, this theme of concern that he had. So we want to keep the context in mind. There's concern within his mind, within his heart, toward this people. And he, his heart is really being wrenched from his soul as he thinks, what is going on? How are they getting on with the Lord? Well, as we come to verse 5, just before we consider his mentioning of the tempter, tempting you and so on, I want us to ask this question and answer it so we're clear in our mind what faithfulness is. What is it to be faithful? Because this is really the, the essence of the joy that enters into Paul's heart. You can see it highlighted in verse 8, if that can be a kind of a hinge uh, verse for this portion. He says, For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. And that kind of is a, a platform for everything else that he makes reference to. It's the fact that they stood fast in the Lord. They were, they were faithful. But what do we understand by faithfulness? Well, one defines it as, quote, "...maintaining faith or allegiance, showing a strong sense of duty or conscientiousness." I'll say that again. "...maintaining faith or allegiance, showing a strong sense of duty or conscientiousness." Now, this faithfulness then, as we have it defined there, is general. But the faithfulness that is being referred to here in this portion that we're looking at is not general. It's specific. The faithfulness that they exhibited when Timothy went back to them was faithfulness to the Lord. And because they were faithful to the Lord, there was one that was seeking to try and remove them from that fidelity, unstable them in that fidelity, and to cause them to, to go sidetracked from their walk with the Lord. So you can see that concern was already in Paul that we looked at last week. He says, look again at verse 2, he's sending Timothy, why? To establish you. And to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. That is the burden. I don't want anyone moved. I don't want the church unsettled. I don't want the people of God to be rocked and caused to be destabilized in their profession of faith. And this is the burden. This is the burden of the pastor. This is his heart as he is detached from them, removed from them in presence, unable to facilitate them, support them, and minister to them in the burdens they carried in the midst of the afflictions. His worry is, will they continue to go on? And so in verse 5 he says again, when I could no longer forbear, when I couldn't wait any longer, I sent to know your faith lest by some means a tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Now, he makes reference to your faith. You see that in verse 5? This isn't the first time. He makes reference to this over and over again. Verse 2, also. <laughs> it's always something. Verse 2, your faith. You see it there at the end of verse 2, your faith. He makes mention of it also in verse 5. Verse 6, he talks about your faith there in the middle, and charity. Verse 7, he also makes reference to your faith at the end of that verse. Verse 10, again at the end of it, your faith. There's a repetition of this idea of your faith. And this faith that they had, that they had professed when Paul was there, was under threat by the afflictions, by the persecutions, but by the strong and very particular and focused activity of Satan. Satan, you see, was angered by the fact that this people, if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 9, I think it summarizes it for us. What happened to them? Well, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And Satan is upset in a number of ways. First of all, He had had them serving false idols, false gods, and they have turned away from that to the living God, but now they they serve the living God. So it's, it's a double blow to Satan. It's not just the fact they have been converted, that they have been transformed in their conversion, but also by the fact that they are now serving the living God. Well, if you go back to the portion, you will see for yourself that this is what is under threat. And it's hard for us really to put ourselves in the place where Paul is. If you're not a pastor, you may not understand. But if you can think of it even in terms of being a parent or someone that you're concerned about or someone that you care for and you don't know what's going on in their life and you're worried. I know there are some parents who've gone through this with their children. They don't even know where they live. They have no idea what's going on in their lives. They've just completely detached themselves from them and they worry. They worry continually about what's going on. It's like a burden they carry every single day. And this was the apostle. He's not just leaving the church. He's not just removing himself from the church uh, and leaving them on them, by, their, by themselves. But he is experiencing this sorrow because he knows that persecution is unfolding there. He's not just left them in the, the, the experience of the joys of this life and this world coming. And Well, we were singing it this past week. Is this vile world a friend of grace to help us on to God? No, no, we're not going to be carried to the skies in flowery beds of ease. And this church understood that. They knew it intensely. And so his lament is, "I, I sent to know your faith. Your faith. Is your faith going on? Are you continuing on in the way you began? Lest by some means, and he doesn't know specifically how the devil could work, He knows that he has a whole array of different weapons that he might use. Let us keep that in mind. The devil does not make one singular attack upon our souls. He has a plethora of ways of destroying the faith of those that seek the Lord and live for him, unless by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now, the devil wants to destroy, as we've said, their faith. And you may ask the question, well, how is that possible? We, we believe in this church that once you're genuinely converted, that that's sealed. I, I mentioned it even in prayer, that, that once we belong to the Lord, neither will anyone ever pluck us out of the Lord's hand. And yet, and yet, there is a reality of apostasy that we're taught in the Word of God. And Paul was well, well aware of this. Whenever you get converted, you don't just have like a kind of light that begins to blink in your head or something that says there's a genuine work there, you really belong to the Lord. There's no evidence of that 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 confirms that you're truly the elect. And so the language of the Lord is very appropriate just to remind you of it. Go back to Luke chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 8. I know there's been some disruptions this morning, beloved, but don't don't let any of that rob you of the Word of God. That he has for your soul here this morning. Luke chapter 8. These are familiar words, I know. But I need to underline it because this is why Paul is concerned. If they had professed faith in Christ, embraced the Lord, and then everyone was absolutely certain that based upon a prayer, a profession of faith, some evidence of that taking root, if that was the case, he would have no reason to worry. It would be fine. It would be settled. The, the, The deal is done. But the pastor never knows. The missionary doesn't know. Even when there is appearance of evidence of something taking root within the life of a believer, he never can be absolutely certain. Especially if he's only spent a short time in their presence. And so, the Lord Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 8. We'll read from verse 11. Just get to the explanation of the parable of the sower. Now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. Those by the wayside, are they that hear... So they have heard, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts. So these are people sitting under the means of grace. They hear the word like you're hearing it this morning. And the word is going out, and it's just as we prayed this morning, all of those children that were taught the word of God this past week, the devil actively engages in an effort to remove the seed from their hearts. You say, how does he do that? Well, I'm sure he has a host of ways that he does it, certainly by distraction, and certainly by getting their mind on something else, causing them to be caught up on whatever might not permit them to meditate. I was just talking, was it yesterday, I think, with someone, we were discussing the, the idea of amusement. And you've heard it, I'm sure, some of you at least, on many occasions, that the idea of amusement. And we, we clamor after amusement, but the sense of the word is that it is in opposition to musing. It's trying to stop us from musing, which is an old term that's not used much these days, thinking. And amusement militates against the activity of thinking, of pondering, of meditating. And certainly the devil has been very effective in filling our world with amusement so that people don't think. And so the children can come in and be instructed in the Word of God. And two minutes later when they take out their their phones and whatever else they, they use that they either have themselves or they take from their parents, Uh, And and they they are distracted immediately. The Word doesn't take root. This is certainly an activity of Satan himself. So you see it there, verse 12. He taketh away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. It's part of His blinding the minds of them that believe not. They and the rock, verse 13, are they, which when they hear, receive the Word with joy. There's an appearance of reception of the Word. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. So they they appear initially to receive the word. And they appear to believe. But temptation comes. It comes through the world, the flesh, and the devil. The great trinity of evil that we are all faced with in this world. And and, and Paul is highlighting particularly the work of the devil. uh, The tempter coming to tempt them. But the flesh and the world, they have their own means as well to tempt us away, to fall away. Verse 14, and that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked. Again, there's the appearance of life. They make forward progress, but they're choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. There's nothing that comes of the planting of the seed. There's no evidence. There's no long-term work that has been done where they aren't all caught up with this life. But part of the experience of the Spirit of God in the heart of every genuine child of God is weaning us off the world, out of this world, preparing us for the world which is to come. And so it's they that on the good ground, verse 15, are they which, in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with, note it, patience. Patience. It's not about a sprint, it's about a marathon. And so it wasn't about the instant reception of the word that happened in the city with the planting of the church that made Paul content. It would be knowing that they would bring forth fruit with patience. That they're still going on. In the heat of the battle with everything prevailing against them, telling them to to quit following Jesus Christ. I mean, let's just stop for a minute. I've mentioned this many weeks ago. Let me just underline. This is not about people saying, calling them names, or, or being rude to them because they received Jesus Christ. This is about losing business. This is about economic downfall. This is about people no longer entering into your business because you were a Jew. And now you've received Jesus Christ by faith. You've claimed Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah while the rabbis and all those that are in the synagogue are rejecting it. And so the entire Jewish community reject you based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. You lose everything. You have family members who will not speak to you. You want evidence of it? Go to John chapter 9. See how the parents of the blind man responded to the fact that he had received Christ and wouldn't deny Him. Or at least he certainly wouldn't deny the work that had been done in his life before he later received Christ truly. And his parents wouldn't acknowledge it, wouldn't really stand with him, just wanted to keep, go, go back to him and tell him. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take a stand. And so he's excommunicated. This is what they're facing. Paul is concerned. Beloved, this is, this is a reality. Apostasy is A real thing. Turning from the faith is real. It's not something that we should think glibly about. We want to see people come to an understanding of the gospel. Parents, you want to see your children come to an understanding of the gospel. Yes, to seek Christ for salvation is utterly essential, but we cannot leave it there and be content that they are merely going into heaven. Your whole work is the discipling of them in that so that they grow and they advance and they become strong. Where are they going to be in terms of the kingdom? Are they going to be an active force against the enemy? Or are they going to be just someone that, well, they pray to prayer. Look, beloved, the whole purpose is to make us fruitful unto every good work. And this is what Paul is burdened about. Again, you try to put yourself there. And he, is, he, is, he is so concerned I could no longer forbear. I couldn't wait any longer. I needed to know about your feats. Yes, by some means a tempter have tempted you, and our labour be in vain. This idea of his, the vanity of his labor is something he refers to in other places. For example, in Philippians 2, verse 16, he exhorts them to continue on. Why? That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So this is why, just to underline it all, this is why in a summary of Paul's teaching to new believers, it exhorted them to continue in the faith. If your idea is simply, well, you're saved, you'll always be saved, and you think you can just leave it there, you're in error. The apostle understands, and every genuine preacher understands, there are forces at work that are constantly militating against the souls of men and women, boys and girls, young people, constantly working. And it is the preacher's job. It is the pastor's work to try and exhort continually to continue on, to keep pressing on. In the midst of a world that's full of sin and depravity, what happens to the hearts of men? The love of many wax cold. I think of that passage often. In the midst of the kind of world... That we're living in now. Where sin abounds. Where corruption is everywhere. In this kind of environment. When the love of many waxes cold. I feel myself to have. Just a little fraction of your time. Every week. To prevent your love. From waxing cold. And your faith. Petering petering out into nothing. Just a short time. I, I just a couple of hours a week, just to try and to militate against the forces that you face in your workplace, in the world, in the media, everything that's confronting you. you. It's all sin. It's completely almost at the point where where anything goes. The lid is taken off. Sodom enters in with all of its vileness. And the love of many waxing cold. Just a few moments in your week to try and breathe some life and heart into your soul to stand fast in the Lord. So we have the enemy of faithfulness, the great tempter. We've considered him already when we looked at chapter 2, verse 18, Satan hindering Paul, his hindering efforts against Paul. They weren't just focused upon Paul, but against the church as well. And the tempter seeking to tempt them and Paul's labor then to be in vain. He He is so consumed with concern about this matter. So there's not only then the enemy, there's also the evidence of faithfulness because when we come to verse 6, here's the happy news. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us always desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith and so on. Timothy had to take a trip of hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles. It, if he stayed in Thessalonica for a week, possibly about a month, he's away from the Apostle Paul, maybe even more. It's a long, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so he makes this journey to figure out, to determine, to evaluate the church and how they're getting on. And he comes with good tidings. A wonderful term he uses there in verse 6. most often used of of the word the gospel itself. But in this context, it's used like Gabriel used it in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, where he came and bring good tidings to Zacharias. And Timothy's report has two parts. First, he speaks of their faith and love, and then he speaks of the positive thoughts that they have generally toward the apostle and their desire to see him. So, let's look primarily upon the first point of this, Where he brings good tidings of, look at it, middle of verse 6, your faith and charity. Your faith and charity. This is a summation of what he observed. Their faith and charity. When he saw a church that was going on with God, he could summarize it in in these terms. Your faith and charity. Now why does he summarize it in that way? Well, faith is the inward working of the gospel. If you were here for adult Sunday school, this would tie into some of the things that were, were discussed your faith is the inward working of the gospel in their lives. And love is the outward working of the gospel in their lives. Paul puts these together in other places. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. Faith is the inward working of the gospel. Love is the outward working of the gospel. It summarizes... The experience of the church when it is what it ought to be. So when he went there, he could see it. And he could summarize it in this way. Good tidings of your faith and charity. In other words, what they'd been taught about the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't just disappeared into the ether. The things that had been instructed toward them and they had been grounded in had had still relevance within their hearts. They They were seeking to develop it and work it out and understand it. And so then their lives were transforming more and more in charity, that is, in love toward the people of God and toward their neighbor and so on. And so a church is functioning the way that it ought. The inward working of the gospel, the outward working of the gospel in their lives. And that's good news. That is good news. If you can, if you can summarize a church in that way, they understand the gospel. It's working into their very souls. It's, it's, just, it's, it's filling their hearts. It's filling their praises. You can hear it in the way they pray. They're understanding the gospel's taking root. And then to see it work out in their lives in love. These two aspects are utterly essential. Both of these graces grow together. It may be said that you are not growing in your commitment to the gospel if you're not also growing in your love for the saints and vice versa. Some of us find one aspect of this easier than the other. Some may love the gospel, love the faith. They, they, they want to understand the faith and be bedded into the faith and grasp the faith and under- understand it to the fullest degree. Others are, are more toward the working out of it and, and seeking to Live charitably toward others and all of that. But it has to be both. See, the problem is if if you put emphasis upon, let's say, the latter, charity, and and you want to manifest love and show love, but it's not with the grounding of the gospel, you may show love where you ought not in the wrong way. That's possible. You, You could show love to an apostate, you could show love to a false teacher you could give time and place to those that you ought not to give time and place to. So it needs to be that the gospel is well understood within the heart, within the soul. But you can't just know it all. You can't just have it worked out within your soul and you understand the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not have it worked out as it is developed there in Ephesians 1 where we said, love unto all the saints. That's, that's the focus. The love has to be manifest to the people of God. There should not be infighting. There should not be bickering. There should not be a lack of grace toward the people of God. There should be care, concern, and love, and a pouring out of of, of adoration toward one another in that sense of, you belong to the Lord. I must treasure you the way the Lord treasures you. I mean, none of us are are more valued than the other. We're all members of the same body. If I... The idea that I can, we can elevate ourselves in such a way that we, we minimize the appreciation that we should have toward the people of God. Christ died for all of His people. They matter to Him. And so they must matter to us. So we can't just fill our hearts and minds with theology and understanding what the Lord has done for us without an evidence of love toward that for whom He did it for. We must love the body. And so... Timothy's summary is, this church is showing this. Good tidings, gospel news, glad news of your faith and charity. All the persecution that was going on in that city had not caused their faith to waver and hadn't stopped them from showing love. That's a good thing, isn't it? I I think it's hard for us to understand what this kind of persecution would would be like to be in the midst of it, where it's threatening your job and threatening your your very life because you're not making ends meet the way you were and your family have rejected you. But they hadn't faltered. They hadn't stopped doubting the love of God, the work of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, so on, and they continue to spread the gospel far and wide and to serve their brothers in the Lord. Again, just for a moment, turn to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 1, sorry, verse 27. There was persecution in this city also, not to the same degree. It was mostly focused upon the apostle, but we don't know what happened or to what extent persecution spread after the apostle left Philippi. It may have come to the church in a very real way, and certainly there's indications of that in the letter. But Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Only let your conversation or your behavior be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Let your behavior be controlled by the gospel. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast. You see? See that? Same as what we have in verse 8. This idea of standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's not you in your small corner and I in mine. Right? <laughs> We're standing together. We're in this together, standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Just stop for a moment. You see what Paul says here? When you're attacked, when you come under persecution, and you stand fast, you hold the line, you continue on to do what God has called you to do, it is evidence to your own soul of a genuine work of grace that you are truly the Lord's. Their their persecution in the face of your love is an evident token of perdition. But their persecution to you and to your heart is an evident token of salvation that's been truly worked in you by God. For unto you, verse 29, let's not leave this out. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. There we are. You see the emphasis again. Suffering as a Christian. Having the same conflict which He saw on me. What did they see in Him? They saw Him imprisoned. And they saw many stripes laid upon His back. And they saw him there in the midst of that prison. And if Paul didn't tell the story, certainly the Philippian jailer would have told the story when he came and joined himself to the church with Lydia and the rest of them. And he would have told the story, there was a man in the middle (laughs) along with Silas. And he was in the middle of prison, blood pouring from his wounds. And at midnight, he's singing praise to God. (laughs) That would be the testimony. They saw it. They understood the spirit in which he took persecution. And they were to follow in the same path. But it gives confirmation that that's one of the encouraging things about persecution. That when I respond the biblical way, the right way, the Christ-like way to persecution, it actually comes back on me with the encouragement that I belong to the Lord. So I read Matthew chapter 5, I go through the Beatitudes and I say, Blessed are ye when they persecute you and they revile you and they say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. (laughs) Don't be worried or concerned about it. It actually girds your faith. So, there was evidence of their faithfulness. They were going on with God. Timotheus came from you onto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. And the second aspect of the report is, and that you have good remembrance of us always, designed greatly to see us as we also to see you. I'll not elaborate much on that, just to show that while there was word of some that were trying to misrepresent the apostle, by and large, the main thrust of the church, the main core of the congregation, just wanted to see him again. They longed to see him again. And he longed to see them in return. That brings us into the third point. The effect of faithfulness. What is the effect of it? Well, there's a couple of things we see here. First, it relieves. It relieves. It brings relief. Verse 7. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. Comforted. Remember what we said last week? This word's already come up. Verse 2, the end of verse 2. To establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. The noun form of this word is applied to the Holy Spirit Himself called the Comforter, the Paraclete, the one who comes alongside. And as we said last week, Timothy was sent to be a conduit of the activity and work of the Spirit of God to be a a ministry to the hearts of those in this church. That Timothy was going there to be a comfort to them concerning their faith. The Holy Spirit working through Timothy would help them as they go on with God, as they would stand in the midst of of the afflictions. But now you see, when he comes back, this is wonderful, he comes back with good news. He says, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you. I sent Timothy to comfort you, to come alongside you, to comfort your soul, that he would be a ministry to you through the Spirit of God. Now you are ministering to us, the Spirit, through Timothy. He is again being a conduit of encouragement and comfort, this time to me, because of the news of how you're going on. We were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. (sighs) What comfort? Just to hear good news. Good news from a far land is as water to the thirsty soul. That is if you care. If you care. You have to care. Sometimes we give reports of our missionaries. The report comes out and we read it. And when it has good news, I feel my heart leap for joy. I hear of how the work is progressing and how God is using the work. Hearing of souls being saved of late in Liberia because of the radio ministry. Hearing of the advancement of the work in Spain seeing the, the advancement of the work in the Paul. We may not see all that we're wanting to see at the exact present time, but my heart leaps for joy when I read those reports. I thank the Lord. I, I truly, it, it, gives, it gives strength to my very bones when I hear good news from other works. We are not to be jealous. <laughs> we're not to be the kind of people that it only matters, or only I only will be joyful if if it applies to me, if things are going well for me, that, that, that's not the way it's meant to be. I think some people they 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 weep when others rejoice, and they rejoice when others weep, and it's the wrong way around, beloved. It's not meant to be like that. When they're rejoicing, let's rejoice with them. When they're weeping, let's weep with them. But you can only do that if you care. If you actually care. And Paul cared, that's why he's he's So concerned he is, the life, the very life is being drawn from him. And so when he gets this news, it brings relief. We were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. Hearing that your faith continues on. You're standing steadfast. You're being faithful. It actually brings comfort to my soul. What a relief. And you can apply this to, to many contexts of life. Faithfulness. Just, just to stop for a moment and think about faithfulness and the effect of faithfulness in all of us. In all of our experiences. If you ever own a business and you run your own affairs and you have to employ people, one of the things you will look for is faithfulness in your employees. And whenever you learn that they are faithful, that they can be trusted, that they're dependable, that they come in on time and you can... And all the th- things you give them to do, they do it well and they do it heartily and so on, then, then it, you, it, it takes a weight off you. You actually sense relief, actual relief. And often it will be rewarded. You'll, you'll give them more responsibility. When a parent sees a child showing faithfulness, they are relieved. When a church sees evidence of a member being faithful, they are relieved. The oversight is. When you take it even to marriage, and some people have this idea that the greatest joy of marriage or the greatest kind of, the great aim of marriage is for the affections to be right in terms of love and whatever that may look like as far as you define it. But really, love in its greatest manifestation often brings its greatest reward to our souls when what's undergirding it and underpinning it is faithfulness. You don't care one iota if someone shows all this affection in the world, but they're not faithful. If they're not faithful, it doesn't matter. What you're looking for is faithfulness. You want the love undergirded by faithfulness. When they're faithful, then you depend on them. You rest. You're relieved. But if for one second you're wondering, are they faithful? There's no relief there. Sleepless nights, sorrow, stress, anxiety. And all the impact that has upon the very physicality of our frame. Faithfulness. It brought relief. That's the point. And to the point, if we can just go on a little more to verse 8, it revives. It doesn't only relieve, it revives. Verse 8, for now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, now we live. The implication is what? He was feeling a sense of death. A spirit of death that was being suffocated. The life and energy was being zapped out of Paul as he was just completely taken up with concern. Now, if you've ever been concerned about something to the degree that it keeps you up at night, then you will understand. And whenever suddenly it's lifted, when it's gone, when it's removed, maybe you're worried about losing a job or getting a job or news from the doctor and these things, they they weigh upon you and, and just the very anxiety of not knowing and wondering and being concerned can remove life from us. So Paul says, now we live. Now we live. You've revived me. When Timothy walked through that door, when Timothy entered in, Paul was just waiting, waiting. Timothy, what's the news? Oh, Paul, you'd hardly believe it. They are going on. They are, they are standing fast. The church has been added on to this happened and that happened and all the authorities sought to do this, that, and the other. This person, you remember them? They're suffering greatly. Their family's rejected. And that person, they've, they're, they're not selling anything anymore. No one will support them. All the Jews have, have, have stopped buying, but they're going on with God. And the community are coming together and they're supporting one another. They're helping one another. They're abounding in love. And he's just telling this news and, and, and Paul, is just, is just, his spirit just comes alive. I'll try and put yourself there beloved put yourself in that frame of of being just bent double almost with anxiety and worry and concern and wondering has the work been destroyed has my labor been in vain and then to get the news the good tidings of your faith and charity he comes alive now we live you stand fast in the Lord, because you're standing fast, and if you continue to stand fast in the Lord, you give us life. Again, look, most of you aren't maybe in the ministry, but so I, I put it right down to the family. When a loved one, when, when there's something amiss in a child or a sibling or in a parent, you will know how it, it just it, it takes over all your thought. You can hardly concentrate on anything at all. And then, when the burden is lifted, then you begin to live again. You can't live with that kind of concern. That's because you care. You actually care. Your heart goes out to them. This was Paul. Remember when Jacob was just coming to mind? And Jacob said about his life being bound up in the child. That's the idea. If anything happens to him, if anything happens you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. It will take the life out of me. And this is Paul. Now we live if you stand fast in all. So it revives. My beloved, keep that in mind. (laughs) If If you want a revived leadership in the church, if you want your pastor to get up with a sense of life and vitality and with heart and with joy, add to his heart by... Showing your fidelity to the Lord, really. Your your faith and charity. You go on with God showing faith and charity, the gospel developing within your heart and mind, and then the outworking of that and love toward the saints and toward your neighbor. When that's seen, when you yet when the pastor sees that, when the leadership see that, then their hearts rejoice. It actually gives life to them. But when it's not there, <laughs> it brings concern. It really does when you're missing, when you're absent, when you begin to detach yourself from the people of God, whenever a word is coming round of you entering into a relationship that is not going to help you in your walk with Christ, it brings concern. Just very quickly, in the revival that he experienced, he revived a couple of things. His prayerful thankfulness and his pastoral interest. You see that in verse 9 and 10. I'll not spend any time in these verses. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy we're with, we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying. So joy itself has been revitalized within his heart. He's full of joy because of the news that he has received. And it has stimulated his pastoral interest night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. I, I just want, again, I'm revived in my interest to get there, to get back, to get to you and to try and help you go on with God. Now, if he had heard bad news, he may have said the same. He may have said, look, I need to get over there and help. But it would have been a very different spirit. His whole journey back there, hundreds of miles, would have been with sorrow and grief. Maybe with anger and frustration. But now he's going to go back there excited about what is happening in this city. What's developing in this church and how God is using them. And their faith is spreading again. Go back to chapter 1 here. Just to refresh your memory. This is the news that is coming from Timothy. Verse 5, the gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and much assurance as you know what manner of men we wear among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word and much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Now, no doubt this was taking part while Paul was there, but obviously it was continuing. It was was spreading. It was furthering. News is coming back from these places. Silas is returning from Macedonia with Timothy, or like Timothy, and coming to the Apostle Paul and saying, well, you know, they're hearing about it in Philippi. And there's just this converging of information that shows this church is going on with God. And it gives life revives thankfulness and gratitude to God and joy in the Holy Ghost and that pastoral interest in the people that he had as he reflects there in verse 10. Now, this has much application to us. It really does. And I don't have time to make all of that application. My time is gone. But let me simply say this. The mark of faithfulness, again, if you go back to verse 8 and see it as kind of any, everything hinging there on verse 8. They're standing fast, they're continuing faithful. This, this is an honorable trait, beloved. You need to exhibit faithfulness. Faithfulness needs to be a mark of your life. Why? I mean, years ago, this was, this was understood. Our parents and grandparents, depending on what age we are here this morning, but the previous generations understood faithfulness, loyalty. These were honorable traits that were, that were exalted and lifted up, and still today, we have days where we remember people who evidenced loyalty to a cause, whether it would be in warfare or something else. Loyalty, courage, honor, faithfulness, dependability. Today it is completely the opposite. Everything in our materialistic age is militating to make you think differently about these traits. They are only honorable insofar as they relate to history, but in the present it's about you. You make sure you satisfy your own carnal desires. You make sure you make decisions based upon what makes you happy. Don't take into consideration anything about loyalty to your family, to your employer, to anyone else. Don't think in terms of fidelity, being faithful in your marriage. If you're not happy, just, just, just get out of it. This, this is the day in which we live. This is, this is not the way it ought to be. Faithfulness, when it's hard, when it's tough, when the afflictions come, when the persecutions press, when you're, you, when you're experiencing the hardship of life and everything in this world and in your flesh is telling you, avoid the hardship. Go back to how we began the message. Christ must needs suffer. And the first thing that the apostles taught to believers was, you're going to suffer. Now we don't have the outward persecutions that they faced. We don't have that. But God will ensure you face hardship. It's by that we sang about it. And He ensures we face hardship because therein we evidence the fact that we belong to Him. And we begin to hanker after glory and realize that this isn't my final abode. It's not about just joy in this life. But all my afflictions, they work for me. What? Far more precious and eternal weight of glory. I'm looking for something to come. Like the Lord Himself. And this is it. God Himself is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 36.5 His faithfulness reacheth on to the clouds. You depend upon that every morning. So you say, and you sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Every morning. You depend on the faithfulness of God. And God is putting his heart, his spirit into you as his child. Faithfulness. Do not adopt the mentality of the age. Do not adopt the philosophy of me and my way. Faithfulness. First and foremost, to the Lord. But then as it works itself out in all your relationships, in every area of your life, when the going gets tough, do not take the easy way out. You embrace the difficulty. or As Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, young Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardness. This is what our Lord did, isn't it? He endured hardness. He went to the cross so that this meeting this morning has relevance. (laughs) If there's no Jesus Christ who goes to the cross and rises again the third day, this meeting, pointless. The epitome of faithfulness is Jesus Christ knowing all of his suffering and setting his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem so that you might never bear the judgment of God for your sins. You're set free from the wrath of God. You're unfettered from the real concerns that we ought to have in relation to eternity. Not just in time, this little little moment of suffering. But He permits, He wills, He even creates the environment that will put us into affliction and hardship. But He has taken away all of the eternal torment we deserve for our sin. Let us evidence our genuine conversion by being faithful, beloved, in every area and opportunity that he gives to every one of us. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Let's all pray. Lord, we thank Thee today for Thy love. We're thankful that our Lord Jesus, we read of Him that having loved His own, which were in the world, He loved them on to the end. They, they gave many reasons to, for Him to ditch them, they all forsook him and fled. They denied him, but having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Lord, we pray for that kind of fidelity that brings joy to Thee. We pray for that kind of fidelity that brings joy to those that are our seniors, or overseers, our parents, or elders. Our employers they like to see fidelity in us. We pray above all that we will not merely live with eye service as men-pleasers, but with singleness, singleness of heart as unto the Lord who is faithful unto death, even the death of the cross. Help us, Lord. The world, the flesh, and the devil militate Against the cause of Christ. We need help. And we beseech thee to help us and to help our children to learn these qualities. It's maybe not as abundant in the world itself as it ought to be, but it is abundant as we read the Word of God. May they learn from the Scriptures these honorable traits, like faithfulness, that they ought to exhibit if they profess thy name. Help us all, Lord. Give us much grace because we want to receive the well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of thy Lord. Part us with thy fear and favor. Grant, Lord, that even in our conversation before we leave, it may be edifying to the soul May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.